0: The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to find out more about us and how we strive to be a gospel-centered, city-focused church community, visit us at missioday.org. I'm excited to be back this week. I'm excited um, to conclude this series, although it's been amazingly incredible. Um, if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, the Genesis chapter number three, we're going to uh, really just do a, a, a brief walkthrough of the entirety of the chapter, um, and then spend some time, draw an application to uh, how sin, how the fall uh, of mankind, how serpents the serpent's deceptions, and man's disobedience, and God's punishment and curse on uh, on different aspects of creation affect the way that we view, engage, and, and just work, all right? And so that's that's where we're headed this week. Next week we'll begin a brand new teaching series on the book of Jonah, and so we'll spend five weeks looking at Jonah. We'll do an intro to Jonah week, and then we'll spend a week dissecting each chapter of Jonah. We'll hit a bigger, we'll hit a different topic each week. I think it'll be amazingly life giving. Um, we're going to talk about topics inside of that. That wouldn't normally fall into uh, a rhythm of studying the book of Mark or things like that, things like depression and, and uh, anxiety and, and, and things like that come as a result of um, being overwhelmed with what the Lord was asking us to do and just the sinfulness of our hearts. And so we'll look at that in life circumstances and things like that. I think it'll be helpful, I think it'll be very practical. But we've spent the past two weeks talking about work, and we've spent the past couple weeks in Genesis one through two. And so if we look at Genesis one and two, we see uh, that God works for joy, right? Genesis one, he created all these things. We get the list and the order. And then at the end of it, what does he say? He says, and it was very good. And so because we are image bearers of God's image, we were also created to work, and our work should bring joy, and so we spent a week talking about that, uh, that work is not the curse, the effect of our work, and what our work feels like is a a response to the curse. And why does it feel cursed? Curse is cursed because sin enters creation, and it destroys our joy in work, right? We still work because we have to, but now uh, how we feel, uh, now work feels meaningless. Work is confusing. Its confusion is brought between work and rest. Work itself feels somewhat confusing as a result of the fall. right, we can ask questions like this. What is work, right? Do Do we compartmentalize work to only our vocation, only to our job that we go to 40 hours a week, or is work much more than that? Does work include our marriage and our parenting? Does work include our pursuit of Jesus? our connection with one another in gospel community and connection within the church? Is there a separation of what is secular and viewed as ministry or faith and what is uh, sacred was viewed as ministry and faith and what is secular is viewed as everything else, right? That, that becomes very confusion. Are we talking only about vocation or are we talking about really the makeup of almost all of life? Because anybody that is engaged in any type of relationship, especially inside the bonds of marriage, know that a healthy marriage takes a lot of work. Raising kids takes a tremendous amount of work. And so all of life is, is work, not just our vocation. So I want us to understand that. There is nothing that we do that isn't work. Even our rest takes work to prepare for, right? If we're gonna spend time in rest, we're gonna have to get prepared to use our time in rest for actual rest. Or if we don't, we all know what happens. Our rest even becomes one that feels like work, doesn't it? Sin leaves us struggling in our work, hopeless for purpose, weary of rest, and in need of a savior to save us from the curse, bringing purpose in life to even our struggle so that we can once again experience life and joy in our work. And that's what we're hoping to discover this morning as we dive into Genesis chapter number three, verses one through five. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at a small portion of our text this morning, draw a couple conclusions, and then wrap it all up at the end about how this um, is actually meaningful and applicable to our work life. So to kick things off, we're gonna read Genesis chapter number three. We're gonna read just verses one through five. We'll draw some application from that. Then we'll move on to other sections of our text this morning. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at uh, Genesis chapter number three, verses one through five, and we assess uh, what is the narrative that is being talked about, we can very easily draw the conclusion that Satan's tactics for deceiving God's people hasn't changed much, has it? He tells lies and then he casts doubt on both the truthfulness of God's word. We see that because he asks, did God actually say? And the goodness of God's character. Because he tells Eve, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's the idea that God in keeping something from you is keeping something good from you. It's not protective, it's not safety, it's not a measure of, of grace that he's extending giving you uh, by giving you boundaries and lanes to operate in. He is being disgraceful to you by not giving you the desires of your heart. Has anybody ever felt like that? I know that I have. Satan lies and he speaks to humanity's need for success and significance, right? He tells Adam and Eve, he says, you will be like God. And if we're all honest, all of our sinfulness, all of our disobedience towards God is rooted in that very idea, that I would be God and God would not be God, right? And that's where sinfulness and and disobedience and rejection of God's truth and a denial of God's character really finds its root in our lives. I would do this differently. This circumstance would be different if this happened, right? And we put our place, ourselves in the place of God and his sovereignty becomes our sovereignty. We want what we want, when we want it, how we wanna get it. And his plan and his purpose is all but meaningless, Some of us interpret success as significance, right? I think that's the heart of what Satan is, is, is deceiving God's people about is that there is a, a level of significance that they can find apart from God, apart from God's purposes, apart from God's plans. And so as we examine our hearts, some of us interpret success as significance, right? We find significance from having enough of this or that, whatever our likes draw us towards if we climb the corporate ladder high enough, if, if, we, if we can retire by this age or that age, if we can have these things, if we can have the, the home, the pretty wife, the two kids, the two cars that are uh, paid for, all these things, then and only then will I find my life significant. Right? Some of us operate like that. Some of us don't operate like that at all. I'm one of those, man. I don't. Things are, are all but meaningless to me. Uh, my car, like you can go look at it. It is a wreck right now. There is uh, five or six dings on every corner. Like it just doesn't, it's just not that meaningful for me. Our house is, is a good house and it's great, but like my wife gets excited about home renovations. I'm perfectly content living with the way it is, right? And so like those types of things, that idea of success by gaining things and by getting things and climbing the corporate ladder and finding success inside of our vocation, that doesn't really attract to me or speak to my significance as a human being. I'm wired a little bit differently. So some of us in here uh, might find significance in things that aren't so materialistic. Right, we don't find significance in climbing the corporate ladder and having position. Our significance isn't found in our uh, our debt to income ratio. Our significance isn't found to the year or the make and the model of our car, or the size of our house, or the beautifulness of our wife. Like our significance comes from things that aren't those things. For many of us, our family, our ministry, our legacy. Right. What we're gonna leave beyond us. Our kids that are gonna grow up behind us and bear our name. Like that's extremely, extremely important to some people. Right, and that's not a bad thing. My grandpa lived for that uh, right before he passed. and the only thing he talked about. All of our th- cousins, my cousins that are Cordy as their last name. Every single one of them to, uh, up until November of 2017, who bared the last name Cordy was a girl. And he, that worried him to death, that his name was not gonna carry on, right? Safe to say, like, that's been remedied. Uh, Through the means of adoption, uh, Richard Cordy now will carry on a Cordy name, which I think is really cool that our family line gets to continue through the means of adoption. And I'm sure that other cousins will have boys at some point, right? Those are important things to us, right? And for some of us, those and things are the important things, even more so than our car, our house, things like that. But if we're not careful, even those things, if they become the things that we start to find our significance in and drawing our identity from, we'll be let down, we'll be be betrayed. We'll be miserable in the end because enough will never be enough. Each of these things, the material and the unmaterial, can be sinful and reveal the idolatry that resides in our heart if not viewed within a proper perspective or given a proper priority in our life. Does that make sense? Satan's lies of God is not trustful his words are not true, God is not good because he's holding good things from you by not giving you what you want, and this this lie of significance, right? See Satan lying to us, this affects the fall. Genesis chapter number three, verse six through 13, we will not read that portion of the text, but I do wanna draw some conclusions in just summarizing the text, and then we'll get to uh, the point of the part of the text we want to unpack in more depth. So in Genesis chapter three, verse six through thirteen, we see that uh, the 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 serpent had whispered all the lies and deception into Eve's heart. Eve has now acted on uh, this deception, and she has eaten of this fruit, and and uh, Adam has eaten of the fruit. And in verse eight, something interesting happens. Right. For the first time, they're aware of their nakedness, they're feeling a sense of shame. Verse eight, God comes looking for them and they're nowhere to be found, right? What are they doing? They are isolating themselves, they are hiding themselves from the very presence of God, from the very grace of God that had created them and placed them in this beautiful garden that is now being wrecked and ravished by sin, right? And that sin brings about what? Shame. Shamefulness. And so we see Adam and Eve, sinfulness, decision to eat the fruit that God told them not to do, to uh, uh, disobey his uh, words and question his goodness had led them to sinfulness, and sinfulness always leads to shamefulness. Every time Adam and Eve chose to eat the one fruit that God had commanded them not to do, the response is shame, withdrawal, isolation. We can draw from this when we make decisions about uh, that are formed from doubt about God's word and questions about God's character, we ultimately make decisions that often result in sinfulness. And when we make decisions that result in sinfulness, the result always ends in us feeling shameful to some degree or the other, right? And so we disconnect, we isolate. Our time with God's word is, is, is out of duty, not love. Or if, if we spend time in God's word at all, our connection to God's people in community wanes because we're ashamed to tell them about this or that, or, or we just feel internally that there's something going on that wants to keep me away from God and to keep me away from his people. In some ways, it's interesting that um, Satan's deception was that if you ate it, you would become like God. In some ways, they had uh, become to uh, understand more like God because for the first time, they were aware of their sinfulness, their depravity. The commands of God lead us to the realization of the dilemma that our sinfulness has And so as they found themselves in the garden, ashamed of the decisions that they had made to engage in sinful behavior, they wanted to hide. And we move on. Genesis chapter number three, verse 14 through 19. One thing that's worthy of mention that didn't necessarily make my notes is this idea that even in their sin, God came to look for them, right? Right? even in their isolation, even in their withdrawing, even in their hunt, and I'm thankful for a God who recklessly pursues me. And we'll get to worship a little bit later of a song that speaks to God's sovereignty in running after us, even when we in rejection continue to run from him. And so God in his grace comes to them, helps them assemble their clothes, helps them hide their shame, and and gives them... um, life and gives them hope. Then he goes on to give them consequences. But at first glance, looks like, man, these consequences might be a little bit harsh, but God in his grace give them consequences so that they could see life in obedience of Christ and see death and sinfulness in their rejection of God. So read with me Genesis chapter three, verse 14 through 19. The Bible says, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So we see that the, the, the consequence or the, the graceful punishment of God is handed down where work was a joy in Genesis one where God had worked to create uh, all that is existing. And he says that it was very good, it was a joyful thing, it was a good thing, it was a righteous thing, it was a holy thing. Now on the back end of it is being used as a curseful thing, right? Not, not, not that work in itself is a curse, but now the, the way you're going to work is going to feel like a curse. And so work in and of itself becomes struggle. So call to work, as all human beings, as we've already discovered, our call to work really is a call to struggle in some sense. And so even the, those of us in this room, men that love our jobs, love our jobs, I'm one of them. I love and thank God every day for what I get to do, right? There are a lot of days that are just hard, a lot of days that are just hard. We've all experienced that to to no matter what our level of love for our job is. See in this text that the serpent was cursed to struggle on his belly and not walk with legs in dignity like most of the rest of God's creation. We see that Eve was cursed to struggle in childbirth, that the that, that childbirth would be way more painful than God's intended design would be, and that they would labor and they would work in and through that struggle to bear children. We see that Adam was cursed to struggle in labor. I think one of the the consistent labors and struggles that men can identify as they work is that idea of significance, is the work I'm doing bringing me the significance that I'm owed or due, or am I doing something that's beneath me, right? That's a fight and that's a struggle. That's a constant thing that we have to work through. Then we see that Adam and Eve were cursed to enmity between one another, and over time, both man and woman would wrestle with and abuse God's created gender identity and roles, right? God's good creation was no longer good, and and the way he's ordered things was gonna put a lot of strife between male, female, husband, and wife. Like, we've all experienced that wrestle, right? All of life is work. And in sinfulness, all of life feels like struggle at the very best in seasons, right? The very best in seasons. I'm not saying all work always feels like struggle, and that would be hopeless and helpless. There are seasons where work is great. There are seasons when work is really bad. So the summary of Genesis chapter three this morning that we wanna work from and begin building, how does this apply to our lives is this. The curse of sinfulness exchanges the satisfaction of work for the struggle of work. The curse of sinfulness exchanges the satisfaction of work for the struggle of work. And as a result of this, we see that for some of us, we'll forsake what is meaningful in pursuit of what is meaningless. We forsake what is meaningful in pursuit of what is meaningless. What does this mean? Some of us get so easily wooed into spending our lives on things that do not matter to the neglect of the things that do matter. And I think this is, this is maybe Satan's, one of Satan's greatest angles to approach us with, is what do we spend the limited time, the limited resources, the limited energy that we've accumulated doing? right? For some of us, the meaningful is neglected because of the meaningless, right? And so we, we get so distracted. We get so distracted even by good things. Career advancement becomes necessary at all costs, even if the cost is our family, our friendship, and our faithfulness to Jesus Christ and his church, Right? That, that, that pursuit of significance, that pursuit of mattering, that pursuit of being somebody and being well-known and having these things becomes one that that overwhelms us and takes control of our lives to the point where our family gets left behind, or our church gets left behind, our relationship with Jesus is all but done in pursuit of what it is that God or what it is that I have chosen as a career to do. We begin attributing everything to efficiency, removing all things from our lives that don't move the ball forward. Our time with Jesus really only becomes about uh, what, is, what are you going to do for me in this season of my life, Jesus? Are you gonna give me the desires of my heart? Are you going to give me this position that I am promised? Are you gonna give me this house that I've been waiting for? And are, are you gonna give me the reconciliation inside of this marriage that we've spent? And so we I spend all that time asking God for things that will advance and lift up the significance that we feel in our heart Why don't pause to just spend time with him, getting to know me? God, show me your character through your word. God, teach me about the things that actually matter because they matter to you. God, show me how I should go about this. God, give me wisdom to make a decision that would honor and glorify you with my career path. All those things get left in pursuit of, man, I want this significance. We get so wrapped up in this pursuit of the meaningless that we cannot live in the moment, right? Because we get so wrapped up with what is next. Man, that's, that's tough for me. That is extremely challenging for me. And somebody who who God has implanted big vision into a heart and mind and, and looking past our life stage, which is a good life stage and good healthy growth and not overwhelming and not wrecking our systems, but looking so much into the forward that I can't enjoy what God has laid before me right now. Some of us live in that tension. The next pursuit, the pursuit of the next car, the pursuit of the next career, the pursuit of the next, next, next keeps us from enjoying the goodness of God in the season that God has us in right now. can enjoy the, the time that we have with our family. We can't enjoy the car we have that has to go to the shop every two, three, four weeks. Right? We live in that constant tension as a result of work and sinful, sinful curse on work that keeps us constantly in that struggle. Some of us forsake what is faithful in pursuit of what is favorable, right? Forsake what is faithful in pursuit of what is favorable. We don't wanna participate in the struggle to create what is not yet or to change what needs changed in, in regards to what is already. We don't wanna participate in the sustaining of what God has given us. And we reject that what doesn't feed our pursuit of pleasure and the idealism of variety is a rejection and meaningless to us, right? So when something or someone at our job isn't found favorable in our eyes anymore, what do we do? We move on. Millennials, man, are are, are killing us because we, we, our time commitment at a job is about two years. That's insane to me. It's insane to me. When something or because all of life is is work and all of uh, life uh, because it's work is gonna find some struggle, we see that uh, movement move into our church relationships which take work. It takes work to be part of a church. It takes work to be in community with believers, right? So when something or someone in our church isn't found favorable in our eyes anymore, we move on. Not because the Spirit's moving us on, but because we're, we're not finding our significance in the places that we used to find it in, and somebody's messed with that. When something or someone in our circle of friends isn't found favorable in our eyes anymore, what do we do? We move on. When something or someone in our marriage isn't found favorable in our eyes anymore, our culture and sometimes even uh, inside of the church we get this idea that it's just, yeah, it's a meaningless commitment. We can just move on. We forsake what is faithful, what God's given us in his word to obey and to follow for what is favorable, what is comfortable, what is accepted in that moment. Many of us in here as a younger crowd, and I, this isn't uh, isolated just to a younger crowd, but... And this isn't isolated just to parents because I know a lot of your stories and some of your stories are parents that are are not a part of your life or a terrible part of your life and you've been abused and you've been rejected and you've got terrible experiences, but for the most part, fill in whoever it is that you look up to as the person who has it together. We want the stability that our parents and their grandparents had in their careers, in their marriages, in their friendships and in their churches, but we don't want the struggle and the work that they had to endure to build decade-long friendships and relationships. Right, man, I long for, I long for the day when 30 years from now we're sitting around a Cracker Barrel with a couple of my really close friends talking war stories. Is that gonna come without struggle? Is that gonna come without being offended? Is that gonna come without being hurt or, or be the person that hurts them? No, but it's a commitment to one another that is going indoor. We're gonna struggle through this. We don't wanna struggle and to endure uh, putting in, uh, retiring after putting in 30 years at the same company. Right? We, we, wanna, we want the celebration of 50 years of marriage, but we don't want to put in the hard work that it takes to get to 50 years of marriage. Man, and the joy of my life is absolutely going to be the day where I get to stand, hopefully not behind this pulpit and hopefully not in this place, but looking at you people 20, 15, 20, 30, 35 years down the road and little kids that once were held up here and dedicated where Jesus were the ones that were standing behind the pulpit proclaiming the word of God. Right? And I know friends and I've got family members who, who endured hard times and difficult times and the, the ending result of that years and decades down the road is beautiful. And I've preached in my home church where I've sat and I've watched so-and-so who was at the fourth grade kids class every single Sunday for all 30 years of her life and she's beyond her ability to do that now, but she gets to sit back with tears rolling down her eyes and the biggest smile you've ever seen, absolutely thrilled to death that the person that was standing behind the pulpit proclaiming the gospel truth was the very same kid that sat in her fourth grade classroom. Man, that's going to be amazing. So we want the things that the generation ahead of us have had, but man, the slightest bit of struggle, the slightest bit of dissent, the slightest bit of opposition, we run from it. We run from it, we seek what is favorable, not remaining faithful to what God has laid before us. Gospel conviction this morning is this idea that Jesus is faithful. Jesus bore our sinfulness and overcame our shamefulness through the struggle of the cross, securing our significance. I hope you get this. Securing our significance, not in what we do, but to whom we belong. Right, the the biggest lie as a result of the curse is that our significance can be found in what we do, what we acquire, what we spend our time on. And the gospel truth smacks that right across the face and it says your significance is not found in anything that you do. It's only found in the person to whom you belong. Jesus, as he came to earth, lived a perfect life, put to death, in his death, the condemnation of our sin, the shame that accompanies our sin, the very shame that has us running from him and hiding, and the enemy from which that sin is born in his deceitfulness. He overcame all of that. And he rose again from the grave, redeeming those of us who were dead in our sin and bringing us to life. And then in gathering and redeeming a people for himself, Jesus is at work currently renewing creation and he is using his redeemed people to accomplish his renewing work. Let's sink in a minute. The circumstances of your life, the difficulty and challenges that you are currently enduring are orchestrated and are brought under the sovereign rule and reign of a holy and perfect God. One that isn't affected by hurt, one that isn't changed by difficulty, one that isn't surprised by unnecessary or difficult circumstances. He's in control and in his plan to redeem a people, and to renew his creation. He has sovereignly placed you in the season, in the moment, in the circumstances, exactly where you are, enduring exactly what you're adoring, and through it all, he's accomplishing his plan to make all things new. Church, we would do good to celebrate the difficulty and the season of life we're in. We Count it joy, that we get to suffer, kind of joy, we get to suffer for the glory of God and the joy of our hearts. As believers, we find significance and purpose in Christ, and because of that, we find it in the work that Christ has employed us to do in caring for his creation. Jesus' faithfulness to the cross, faithfulness to his people is unending. He redeems his people. He keeps them for eternity. There's no moving on to the bigger things with Jesus, not because he couldn't if he wanted to. In his sovereign plan, he has committed himself to the church, to the bride of Christ, to those who are redeemed by him. If if, if the next big thing came along and said, I could accomplish the purposes of God better, he'd be committed to you because his love has connected to you through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of his son. He stays committed to those who belong to him. In this, we find our greatest joy. We find our greatest hope and our greatest significance. Jesus is faithful. Jesus' call for us is to be faithful. When work seems struggle, when work is challenging, when it's, when it's difficult to stay in that marriage, when it's difficult to stay in community with God's people, when it's difficult to work a job that you feel that, like it's dead end, but His Spirit hasn't moved you on to something else, stay faithful, because Jesus has been faithful to you. Gospel practice is a result of Christ's faithfulness. We can do three things. There's more than this, but here's the three things we're gonna look at this morning. First thing I want us to draw our attention to is this idea. We haven't spent much time talking about it today. Look forward to a series where we get to dig in deeper because I think it's important, but the first one is this. Work from rest, not rest from work. Work from rest, not rest from work. The idea of the Jewish Sabbath is is amazing because it starts on on the start of a day and ends at the end of a day, according to the Jewish calendar, right? So the idea, one of the ideas is that is that you, you rest, then you work, right? And so we've got it somewhat backwards. It's interesting in the way that God created his order. On the sixth day, God created humanity. What was the very next day? The day of rest. So he completed his work, he rested, then God's people got to work, right? So this idea of resting from, working from rest, not resting from work, Our work should be born out of our rest. Most of us work our 30 years to have the opportunity to rest, but this is backward and in opposition to God's design. Sabbath rest is important because it repostures our hearts to trust in Jesus and not in ourselves. It postures our hearts to trust in Jesus' strength and not in our own strength. And ultimately it finds our rest in Christ. As we rest in Christ, and only from a position of resting in Christ can we truly endure the struggle of work and accomplish all that God has created us to do. So are we working for the opportunity to rest, or are we resting in Christ enough to be able to rest even when there's still work to do? Right? And then I think I that's think the heart of Sabbath. I'm not as well studied as other people in the room, but I think the heart of the Sabbath is this, that God is in control. Jesus has accomplished all the work necessary. Our work is a reflection of him. And when we work in a way that's unhealthy from us that we can't rest, we're denying his sovereignty. We're denying his grace. We're denying his finished work as sufficient. And so we stop, no matter what the task list looks like, no matter how much work still needs to be done, and we rest. We prepare our hearts to be dependent on Him, and Him alone, and that fuels us to carry out the work that He's given us to do in our workplace, in our home life, in our marriage, in our neighborhood. Right, does that make sense? Second thing, work from calling, not from comfort, work from calling, not from comfort. Our pursuit of comfort deceives us. And when comfort wins out over what God is calling, is gifted us and has wired us to do, what we do seems way more like struggle than it does joy, right? Some of us are operating in this this facade of I've got to do this to get this, totally in opposition to the way God has gifted you, the way God has wired you and called you, right? And finding that balance. Our greatest joy can and will be found at the intersection of where God's purposes meet, the ways God has uniquely equipped and gifted to you. And so from that, we use all the tools that you have been given to work, to work hard and to endure not just in the new job, because some of us can hear that and be like, oh, I'm not gifted, I'm not called, I'm not equipped to do this, it's time to move on to something else. It's like, no, sometimes you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And looking on would be denial of God's plan for your life. But how can you operate inside of that position from your calling to put on display the glory of God and to find joy in your work in a way that you're not currently able to do because of a pursuit of comfort? What ways do your education, your gifts, God's calling on your life affect your everyday work? Are you working from your calling or from the pursuit of comfort? And then lastly, and we'll close on this, work from faithfulness and not from feeling. Work from faithfulness, not from feeling. Work from what you know to be true, from faithfulness and obedience to God and his sovereign plan. There will be many days when you won't feel like enduring, where you won't feel like working, where you won't feel like striving. In those moments, which will be many, we have to decide, will we be faithful to what we know to be true, or will we operate from the doubt oftentimes created and deceived within our feelings?